listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Quick reminder that the PBI annual dinner is rapidly approaching. The event will be in New York City on Thursday night, September 28th at the amazing Gotham Hall. More information can be found on the web at probonoinst.org, or if you prefer the phone, give Kelly Simon a call at 202-729-6691. We're grateful to all of our generous sponsors and supporters. Today's guest is Valentine Brown from Dwayne Morris. Valentine is based in Philadelphia, and we discussed her career and role at the firm, what she's learned and accomplished since assuming leadership of the firm's pro bono program, inspiring pro bono efforts on behalf of immigrants, veterans, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Valentine, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It seems like just yesterday that Tammy Taylor and I were meeting with you and your colleagues at your offices in Philadelphia on a hot summer afternoon, but it's actually been quite a while, so I'm really excited to catch up with you. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? In other words, tell us about you. Sure. I was born and raised outside of uh, Washington, D.C., in the suburbs in Maryland, and I went to University of Delaware for undergrad. I was a language major there, and then I went to University of Baltimore for law school, and most recently, I've been working on my golf game, which has been a lot of fun, and, you know, working on the pro bono program at Dwayne Morris, which takes a lot of energy. Yeah, that's a lot to keep you busy, and as uh, we're sitting here talking to you from Washington, D.C., we love to talk to someone who uh, grew up nearby. So before we get too far down the road, I've got to ask you the obvious question, and that is, could you tell us a little bit about your name? Because I'm sure everyone is super curious. Sure. I am the fourth generation first daughter named Valentine in my family. So the story goes that my great-grandmother, who was born in Warsaw, Poland, was born on Valentine's Day. And she uh, emigrated to the United States in like around 1908, 1907, around there. And so my grandmother um, was named Valentine, my mom was named Valentine, and then me. So I've always told the same story that, you know, my great-grandmother was born on Valentine's Day, and of course the family was Catholic, and you named your child after their saint's day. So a few years ago, I was going through some of the family papers, and I found my great-grandmother's naturalization document. And it turns out that she's actually born in August. (laughs) Whoops! Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I haven't done my genealogy research yet, but I don't actually know. I'm thinking maybe there's another generation back that was named Valentine, but um, I have to do my research to find that out. That is awesome. It also may mean that you can make up whatever origin story you want. Exactly. That is great. That is so great. Well, thank you for sharing. Valentine, why did you decide to become a lawyer? I think it was because. I really wanted to, you know, my family was always sort of a helping uh, family. My dad was a doctor and my mom was the consummate, you know, volunteer. 
in in our church, in our schools, in the community, voter registration, all those kind of things. And so I think I wanted to do something that would really, you know, I, I knew how to help people, you know, give them rides, you know, register them to vote. But I wanted to do something that could really actually help people on a on a broader sort of um, bigger scale and on a longer term basis. How did you get to Dwayne Morris? It's quite a long story. I've been here since 2009. And I, I've started, I'm, I'm an immigration attorney by trade, so I've been practicing immigration law for 22 years. So I was in a, um, I've worked in boutique immigration firms in Philadelphia. I had my own practice, solo practice with paralegals and an associate in New Jersey for nine years. And after, uh, basically, it was, it, it was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful practice and everything was going well with it, but it was a lot of pressure to keep it up with all of the, you know, employees and all that. So I started looking for opportunities to join with another firm and the opportunity with Dwayne Morris presented itself. So I've been here as an immigration partner in the employment law group since April of 2009. So it sounds like it's stuck. That's a, <laughs> it's a good match. Um, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about the firm generally, uh, practice areas, location, size, just for people who might not be too familiar with Dwayne Morris? Sure. It's a Philadelphia-based firm. It was started in the early 1900s. It was a, uh, started as a Quaker firm, so we do everything by consensus even today. And we have about 300 attorneys in Philadelphia and then we have uh, 19 other offices in the U.S., you know, all major metropolitan areas. And um, and then we also have been on an international expansion in the past few years, and primarily focused on Asia. So we've got London, um, our headquarters Asia office is Singapore, but we've got Malaysia, Taipei, two offices in Vietnam, Shanghai. Um, and we also have an office in Oman. So it's quite an interesting um, place and lots of opportunities to do really different kinds of pro bono. So speaking of pro bono, how did you come by your pro bono leadership position at the firm? When I joined the firm in 2009, I was really uh, excited to be able to keep doing pro bono. I, you know, be, Being an immigration practitioner, I've always done a ton of pro bono because it's such a great need and it's a, it's not hard to fit it into your practice. So I had always done pro bono. When I came here, they there was no immigration partner in the Philadelphia office, so which is where the bulk of our attorneys are. So with me here, they were able to do a lot more immigration related pro bono because I could help you know train and supervise cases. So the first thing that we did was start a VAWA practice group probably in 2010, and and then that just sort of grew from there. And I've always done a lot of uh, naturalization pro bono cases as well. So we were doing tons of immigration. So when so that was going on, and when the the pro bono council resigned her position. It was probably October 2014. She let everybody know she was leaving by the end of the year. 
I was like, man, I would be great for that job. <laughs> so uh turns out there were three internal candidates for the position. And it was it was kind of nerve-wracking. You know, I did meet with uh, the chairman and he wanted to hear what my proposals were to, you know, improve the program, what would be my focus. And uh, and then we had to work out, you know, my partnership issues and all of that. So, uh, I, but it was quite a negotiation and I started in the position in January of 2015 and we rearranged the whole pro bono program. So, um, I am pro bono partner and then we have Catherine Christian McGee, who's the associate pro bono counsel who had previously been, um, like the pro bono coordinator prior. And, and then since we've been in the roles, we've also added a, um, like a pro bono administrator. She joined us in probably June of 2015, who's also a, um, a licensed social worker. So we have a really great team going now and made a lot of progress. That is awesome. And I'll do a, uh, a coming attraction because we're going to look forward to talking with Kat McGee in the near future about her experience and, and we'll get her perspective and shine even more of a spotlight on the great work that you're doing. So now that you have your team in place, how are the responsibilities divvied up among you and the rest of your team? Sort of who does what? What are the roles and responsibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. It's definitely been something that's evolving as we've all honed our skills and learned, you know, more about what the needs are and what are the best practices for the firm. In general, I would say that I um, sort of, I love kind of marketing and developing campaigns and ideas and sort of the big picture kind of, uh, you know, thought processes about how to get more people involved, what additional projects we can work on, and all of those kind of things. So in that sense, you know, I um, am sort of doing overall direction of the program, as well as a lot of communicating to practice group uh, leadership, firm leadership, and, you know, and then, of course, responsibility for all of the, the fires that need to be put out and, you know, whenever we get kind of sensitive type of pro bono opportunities or large pro bono opportunities, making determinations on whether those are the kind of cases we can take on or not. I'm continuing in my immigration practice as well. So, you know, splitting my time, you know, both representing billable clients and doing the pro bono program. Yeah, that was actually my next question. So how do you manage? How do you manage a busy billable practice and sort of oversight of the pro bono program? It's, I mean, lots of delegation to lots of really great people. Yeah. So, yeah. So the pro bono team is awesome. And then I, I have an immigration team as well that I am able to delegate to and supervise. So it works out really well. And it's, that's been a learning curve too. You know, the first in the first, especially during the first year in the pro bono job, we had so much we wanted to do and there was a lot of room for growth. So we really were working hard on a lot of projects. We've established, you know, once you get through one year in a new job, you see all the cycles and the various, you know, reporting cycles, uh, you know, all of that. Uh, 
pro bono week. You know, we have two firm retreats. So there's a lot of events. And once you figure out how to manage and time that all out, we also do an annual report. So the timing on that. But we've, you know, we have two years under our belt now. So it's much easier to manage and know what's coming up next. Yeah, I think those are some dynamite takeaways. One, get through the cycle. I mean, you really learn a lot <laughs> once you're actually in the position and see what's going on. And don't be uh, nervous about making changes. You know, you got to figure it out as you see people's strengths, as you see people's interests. And I would say uh, my other dynamite takeaway from that is delegation, right? I mean, people can't do serious, um, really busy jobs well without delegating and having a team that they can trust and who will support them. I mean, we, we, we're not islands. We can't do it all ourselves. And that's a difficult lesson for many people to learn. But I mean, that's dynamite advice. So <laughs> I hope people will listen and take heed. Yes, it's funny. Kat uh, McGee and our um, social worker, Casey Obenchain, just last week, they mentioned to me that I had taught them so much about delegating because you know, now they're delegating. So, and along those same lines, you know, being in a large firm, we have amazing resources. We have marketing, we have IT, we have reports, we have practice support. It's amazing the resources that are here, even the coffee shop, you know. So, delegating and using all of those tools to their fullest advantage, you know, even the library research. Uh, there's so many ways to delegate here and, you know, and delegating to people that are much more equipped and quick at doing the things that you're trying to do. Yeah. And what have you found the response to be when you've asked? I mean, I suspect that, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but looking at the amazing pro bono uh, publications that you produce, I suspect that the people who have helped you with that have been delighted to help you. I mean, this is, these are projects that people like to work on. They just need to be asked. Yeah, that's definitely been our experience, especially with marketing, for sure. What do you enjoy the most about your work leading the firm's pro bono program? I think the thing I like the most is working with the clients, honestly. I really have always enjoyed getting to know people who are different than me and being able to help people through a really difficult time in their life, which usually if you know, pro bono clients for sure, you're touching them at a moment that's really high stress, you know, could any number of things could be going on for them. So being able to be there and really um, be a steady, firm support for them has been really rewarding for me. That's wonderful. I'd, act, I'd like to pivot and um build on that point. I, in part of our research, I found this testimonial from one of the firm's pro bono immigration clients. They wrote, I am deeply thankful to Dwayne Morris for the firm's selfless representation of me in my hour of need. My attorneys became and still are my best friends. They are compassionate human beings who understand perfectly the intricacies of the law and are aware of the stress that legal proceedings can have on an individual. Um, 
So the firm and Valentine, you as an immigration law expert, have been involved in a lot of immigration-related pro bono efforts. Why were you attracted to immigration law to begin with, you know, on the commercial side and in the pro bono side? And tell us more about the types of uh, pro bono matters you've been working on. I think for me, being a language major, I was always interested in international relations, international law, and also, you know, once I went to law school, I really loved constitutional law as well and employment law. So immigration really pulls all of those uh, areas in together. And plus, you know, having the opportunity to work with people with so many diverse backgrounds is is really, really rewarding. The firm's immigration practice or pro bono immigration practice is, you know, runs the gamut. We've been doing kind cases. We've been doing lots of asylum work, especially in the last couple of years. Um, the quote you read is from an asylee who his case was worked on by actually a corporate partner with help from our really senior, wonderful immigration partner in the D.C. office. And uh, he, he was a wonderful client, and he really did become close friends with the corporate partner who was working on his case throughout. Because you know, immigration cases take years to complete. So you you really do have a chance to get to know your clients well. He was just a joy to work with, and the, the entire office really adopted him. So in addition, we're doing uh, lots of VAWA work, U visas. Right now, we're running a 360 acts of citizenship campaign. So the idea there is to do before the end of the year, 360 either individual naturalization cases or attend clinics or attend um, naturalization screenings. So we put that out probably beginning of May, I think, and we already have over 100 different um, specific you know, cases taken or clinics attended for naturalization. In our New York office, we're working with the Mexican consulate in New York and on a referral kind of program with them. So we've been receiving quite a few U visa and VAWA referrals from the consulate there. We have a wonderful senior associate in our New York office who's taken that up as, as her project and is liaising with the Mexican consulate and also uh, supervising, you know, getting volunteers and then helping with the cases out of the New York office. So it's wonderful. That's another example of delegation, right, is to empower the senior associates to take on leadership roles. And then in Philadelphia, our um, Casey, our social worker, runs a clinic here where every week she goes to one of the um, Latino social service uh, nonprofits and does VAWA intake every week, and usually and she'll take a, an attorney or two with her from the Philadelphia office and will um, usually bring back a couple of U visa or VAWA cases from that clinic as well. So there's so there's such a huge need 
yeah, huge need, but you've set some ambitious goals, so that's exciting. Aim high, and, and you could do amazing things. Before we leave this topic, for people who aren't familiar with the terms, could you just briefly explain, you've thrown out some terms, VAWA and U-Visa, just kind of briefly to give people some context for what those are? Absolutely. VAWA stands for Violence Against Women Act, and that was uh, legislation passed, I think, in the mid-'90s where they uh, – under immigration law, people who have been in domestic violence situations and are a relative of a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident can get their immigration status straightened out even without the direct sponsorship of the, um, the spouse or parent. So somebody who's been abused uh, mentally or physically, an adult or a child, by a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident can still get their green card even though uh, the relationship is, you know, broken or um, or ended. And the reason that they did that is because there's so much um, control issues in the domestic, um, you know, in a domestic violence situation. Immigration is often used as a mechanism to control the foreign national. You know, the, the abuser will threaten them with deportation or reporting them to immigration if they report the abuse. So this breaks that cycle and allows the the person who's being abused to get out of the situation and get legal status. The U visa is for somebody who is a victim of crime, and it applies often in the domestic violence context when the abuser is not a legal permanent resident or a U.S. citizen. You know. Oftentimes, the abuser might also be undocumented, or the there was no legal relationship; they were never married. So, in that, a U visa for domestic violence would uh, apply in that situation. But U visa also there's a list of crimes that will qualify somebody for a U visa, and so it could be you know you could be mugged, robbed on the street by a stranger and you could qualify for a U visa if you assist the police in the investigation. And the hardest part of the U visa is you must get a certification from the police who investigated the crime to confirm that you were helpful to the investigation. But the amazing thing about that benefit is if you do get approved for your U visa, it does put you on a path to a green card and eventually citizenship. So it's a very extraordinary immigration benefit. Thank you. Thank you for that education. I think that's really helpful for people. I was struck in doing research uh, for today um, and came across the recent announcement of new partners at the firm, and just about every attorney bio highlighted their pro bono work. That, That was an amazing accomplishment. And since you and your team have assumed leadership of the pro bono program, what do you consider your biggest successes or achievements? Last year, we had 100% participation by associates in the firm. That was the first time that's ever been done. Uh, we have doubled the hours in two years. So when in 2014, we did about 16,000 hours, a little over 16,000. And then in 2016, we did over 32,000 hours. And this year, we have a goal to do almost uh, 36,000. So 
we're trying to, we're doing about 3,000 hours a month of pro bono. And this year, our goal is to have 100% participation by partners and associates. So we are working hard on that goal. Uh, but definitely getting the numbers up um, was a huge um, accomplishment. When our first um, quarter in the job, we did a presentation to the executive committee, and we had laid out a strategic uh, plan, and we put different options, you know, three, four, or five years. And it was all based on numbers and reporting and how to get participation up. So the executive committee didn't you know, they wanted us to succeed in our goals, so we picked the five-year plan for the numbers, and we ended up meeting the five-year plan in two years. So that's been a really uh, wonderful testament to all the hard work as well as really getting leadership engaged and supportive. Of- yeah, we were so excited to have the firm sign on to our law firm pro bono challenge, so that's been another win that we're very excited about. What yeah, is- we made our... We made our 3% goal last yeah, so, year. Yeah, it's really uh, super exciting. Um, where, we talked a little bit about, you know, focusing on partner participation and upping that. Where Where's room for improvement? What do you see as your greatest challenges? And what have you identified as sort of areas for improvement? Definitely partner participation is one of our, our um, biggest areas for improvement. And as well as getting partners you know, off of just doing one hour, right, getting them up to 20 hours. So that's, you know, before we uh, took over leadership of the program, we had had, you know, we had a a great pro bono program, but it was kind of status quo, and there was no real push or, or leadership to increase uh, participation rate. So now we are reporting, presenting, and you know talking to people at all levels of the firm. You know from the executive committee, practice group heads, and office heads as well. And really bringing you know bringing the the benefits of pro bono and the need for pro bono to top of mind. You know at all levels of the of the firm on a regular basis. So um, continuing with that communication is, you know, is really key to to getting the partners to participate. Now we're to the point where I think we already have about 75% participation this year, which is, you know, for the halfway through the year, it's a really good, um, it's a good place to be. So we're really working on the partners who have really never done pro bono and, you know, getting to them and finding something that's interesting to them and, and just helping them understand that they can fit a pro bono case onto their plate, you know, just like they fit another billable case. You mentioned earlier that, you know, the reason you were attracted to the law was to help people. You came from a family of helpers and there were a lot of volunteer opportunities, but you saw the law as a way to help. What else do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? You know, I've always had a soft spot for the underdog. Uh, I don't know why, but it's just always, you know, been with me. When I was in law school, I was involved with a, a nonprofit group out of University of Baltimore that worked with a homeless population in in uh, Baltimore City. 
so, you know, I would literally, I would go every week, I would go pick up the extra bread from the bread factory in Baltimore and go drop it off to a couple of, um, um, you know, food pantries and, um, you know, soup kitchen type of, um, organizations in the city. Um, you know, we used to run a giant volleyball tournament that was also like a, it was kind of like what they do now for veterans with the stand down, but this was just for homeless people and we had clothes, supplies, you know, everything sorted, cleaned, and they could come and just pick up what they wanted. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's just always been there. I remember one story that always sticks with me from my childhood. You know, I lived in a neighborhood of doctors and, you know, in, in Potomac, Maryland. And across the street, my neighbor had a, a housekeeper. I think pretty sure she was from El Salvador. And this was in the 80s. And she lived in the basement during the week, you know, taking care of this family and then would go home on the weekends to her apartment, you know, in Prince George's County where she had her husband. And my mom would drive this woman rather than have let her take the bus, which was not easy from where we lived. My mom would actually take this woman home every like Friday night and drive her all the way um, to her house so that she didn't have to take the bus. So that story, just the, you know, the compassion in that story always, and most of the time I was in the car, you know, on this ride with my mom. So I just, I just remember that story. It was, it was just such a different way to look at people than was the normal way at that time. And it, it's a great example, as you said, of compassion and how even the smallest acts of human kindness can just make a huge difference. And yeah. I feel that way about pro bono. A lot of people think even, you know, the smallest services that we provide, but they can provide a disproportionate effect on people's lives. It's it's a tremendous gift that we're given. Um, and that's uh, a great story about it. Could you share, we talked a little bit about uh, one of the asylum seekers and some of the other clients you've represented, but could you tell some other examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you, either because you worked on them or you've seen the firm work on them and for whatever reason they really speak to you? Sure. We're doing a ton of veterans work. So we've got veterans, um, service-connected disability um, appeals, um, and then, you know, appeals within the agency, and then also we're doing, working with the Veterans Consortium in doing appeals before the um, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. So I just took my second one of those, and we got, the government agreed to settle on the conference, on the case conference phone call. So that was that was just last week, which was a miracle because that's the first time that's ever happened here. Um, and all of it's called a Rule 33 conference. And so the government said they would remand immediately. And our veteran is an 86-year-old uh, World War II and Korea vet who lives in Puerto Rico. And so he's, he's trying to get um, service-connected disability for uh, problems with his eyesight. And so anyway, that was, that, that's been a really fun case, but all of our veterans work is really uh, interesting. We're doing uh, medical legal partnerships 
one of our senior associates in the Washington, D.C. office has been working closely, again, with the Veterans Consortium, and they've developed a regular um, medical legal um, clinic, you know, at the a couple of the veteran hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area. We've been working with um, Urban Justice in New York to do discharge upgrades. Those are really hard cases, but so uh, worthwhile, uh, especially uh, there's a lot of vets who had either a medical discharge uh, or other than honorable discharge when really the issue was post-traumatic stress disorder. So depending on, you know, the level of the discharge is the level of benefits that they get. So even on with a other than honorable discharge, they cannot get the, um, you know, the GI Bill education benefits. So helping some of these veterans get their discharge upgraded, we've been, we've been doing a lot of those cases as well. We have a program we started in 2015, which is called Veterans Week of Service. And that is, we, it's around the, of course, around Veterans Day, November, depending on the week, but, you know, five to ten days of really concerted uh, veterans-related pro bono activities. So we'll have definitely uh, training provided, and then we try to have at least one sort of clinic activity or something for each office. And try to get everybody to at least do one hour of pro bono during that time frame that's veterans-related. We did a really interesting project last year with an organization called Bunker Labs, which is sort of an incubator for veteran-owned startups. And they have, uh, I think they were founded in Chicago, but they've got chapters um, in a lot of cities now. So we worked with the one in New York and did basically a small business clinic for the veteran-owned small businesses up um, in their house actually in NYU in New York. So we went up there with a bunch of our um, intellectual property, corporate um, litigation um, partners from the New York office and did a clinic for them last year um, during Veterans Week. So we're doing all kinds of veterans' work. Another big area for us this year in our Pennsylvania offices here in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh has been the juvenile lifer uh, without parole issue. So uh, the the issue has been in Pennsylvania that we have about 300 um Men, women, just a couple women, mostly all men serving a life without parole who were convicted as juveniles. And because of the line of Supreme Court cases, finally, um, it's, it, you know, it's been held that the, the, um, that this is a cruel and unusual punishment and you can't, you know, it's not legal any longer. So they've been, huge push in Pennsylvania to get all of these people resentenced. And of course, the Defenders Association was taking the bulk of the work, but had conflicts when it was, you know, joint defendants in a lot of cases. So we took four cases, you know, on the first instance of resentencing. And then we have one right now that the resentence was denied. And so we have it on appeal. 
out in um, Pittsburgh. Uh, the case that I was I was on the team, I didn't do a lot of the work, but our person was convicted of, of course, he was capital crime, he committed murder when he was 17 and had been in jail for 35 years out in western Pennsylvania. And I went to the resentencing hearing, which happened here in Philadelphia. And I have to say, I was, you know, I was there at counsel table listening to um, our attorneys present. The, fam- the courtroom was filled with about 30 of his family members, all from Philadelphia, extended family, cousins, all kinds of people, all ages. And when our client read his statement of remorse, that, of course, our um, the associate on the case had been to the prison numerous times to help him work on it, I'm not kidding you, but the court reporter was crying in the courtroom. And it was just such a um, healing moment for everybody in the room. I think even the judge was um, so moved by, you know, just the just the opportunity to finally put justice, you know, to the right in this particular case. You know, they had um, the um, the prosecutor's office. They had contacted the victim's family. They did not come to the case, to the hearing, but they were in agreement with the allowing the resentencing to go through. So he was resentenced to 35 to 40 years and was immediately eligible for parole. Uh, this all happened in the last six months. So I think his hearing was in November 2016, and then he went up for parole in February and um, was actually denied parole. We were all completely devastated. And and then within a few weeks, we don't exactly know what happened, but we think that there was so many of the other cases were getting approved for parole that uh, they didn't want that particular prison where our inmate was staying to be the only one that didn't get it. So they looked at the case again, and he was um, all of a sudden his parole was granted, and nobody knew how it happened. So he's been out now for a few months, and we've had him to the office. We've had lunch with him, and um, he's doing great. But that's that's been an amazing story. Our other three cases are still going. Um, they haven't made it to the resentencing stage yet for the, for the actual hearing. We've had a number of guests on the podcast talk about um, the sort of issue of juvenile lifers and what this work has meant to them. What has this meant to you and uh, the other people at the firm that have worked on these cases? What, what do you think their feelings are of working on these types of matters? I think at first, it's mostly the trial department, right, the litigators that get involved. And I think, you know, they go into it thinking about the law and the Supreme Court line of cases. And, you know, and then there's the logistics. Oh, my God, I have to go to the prison. How am I going to get there? But I think once you actually sit down with the clients and hear their stories, it really goes to all the heart of all the issues. Uh, mass incarceration, prison reform, all of the all the social issues of the day really come out so strongly in these cases. And so I think they've all been personally moved 
by the work. And I think it just encourages all of us who want to do more and to not be afraid of doing criminal defense type of work or to, you know, to look more deeply at those types of cases and what is the societal purpose and benefit of doing them. What's on the horizon for the pro bono program? Could you tell us about something new that you have in the works? One of the things we were really trying to do is use the pro bono program as a way to engage employees and, of course, attorneys in the firm, you know, just more in firm life and firm culture. So we are, as part of our 360 Access Citizenship Campaign, we are going to do a mini, like a selfie video sort of competition. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that came to light as we rolled out the program was how many people we have in the firm who are naturalized citizens and, you know, partners and employees alike. And everybody started telling us their naturalization stories, which we had no idea they were even naturalized. So we wanted to have a chance to share that with all of the firm. And so we're going to be um, giving everybody a chance to sort of do a one-minute video on, you know, what does citizenship mean to me? And and then we'll post the videos up on our intranet and um, see if we can get some sort of um, competition going as to, you know, what's everybody's favorite video. So that we're really looking forward to that as well. What a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. We're gearing up for our Veterans Week of Service this year, even more ambitious, you know, trying to make sure we have really a really strong project going in, in each office and trying to get attorneys to step up and run those projects because clearly we can't run them all in one week. <laughs> yep, yep. That's amazing. Well, we'll stay tuned and we'll look forward to updates. The uh, the selfie project sounds amazing. Um, it's hard to believe summer associates are winding down, but it's already recruiting season. On-campus interviews are beginning. Callbacks will be happening soon, uh, if they haven't already, from various law schools around the country. What advice do you generally have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? I think pro bono is a wonderful way to have a little bit of control over your caseload and your own professional development. We give every summer associate a, a pro bono matter that's assigned to them, but then they can also pick up additional ones out of, you know, the open assignment pool. So we try to get them on board, you know, immediately. And a lot of them report that it's one of their favorite assignments of the of the summer because they're usually dealing with a, a real person. They get client contact, you know, um, even if it's on the phone, um, you know, having a chance to talk to somebody who's who really needs help in that moment and that they're able to help them. It's really uh, gratifying and fulfilling. And, you know, just, um, you know, the other thing too for first, for young associates, it's such a whirlwind when they get into a big firm that having having a couple of matters that they are super you know that they are running themselves that they are the lead person on and are directing the um, the representation of course with you know with training and help but it's just a very uh, it's a, a 
a, a great way to have a mental break from the, you know, the grueling um, litigation or type of corporate matters that they normally get assigned to, document review, that kind of thing. So it's a really good way to keep your sanity and to keep it in front of mind, you know, why you did go to law school. Valentine, let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? Yeah, this is a hard question for me, but I think, honestly, um, uh, Kat McGee has been a wonderful role model for me. She has been in uh, pro bono-related roles her entire legal career, and she really is somebody who uh, believes so strongly in the mission and also has a great network and um, knows, you know, all the players in, you know, in a lot of different cities and um, a lot of different, of course, local and national organizations. So anytime there's a connection to be made or an introduction to be made, um, she's really um, the perfect person for that. And also, too, she has made a, her focus has sort of been on the family law side of things. And, you know, she's been expanding that to um, human trafficking and some other areas. So just watching her develop her um, skills in different areas has given me, you know, courage to go out of my comfort zone and, you know, do um, veterans work or, you know, um, be on the, the, the JWAP case. So, it's really, um, she's been a great role model for me since I've been here. Uh, well, I'm sure Kat will be very flattered to hear that. And I think it will be really exciting for us to have an opportunity to speak to her. Just as been, it's been super exciting for us to speak with you. So thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. It's been a pleasure and incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much. enthusiastic thank you to Valentine for joining us today. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. Leave some stars, write some comments. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. Hey listeners, we'd love to hear from you directly. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. We'll be back with a new episode next week. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for listening.